This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We talk with Cecilia Benoit, distinguished social scientist, about the voices of the silence, sex workers, and how they've been left out of government programs. None of us are immune to the intense emotional impact of dealing with a pandemic. But what happens when anger is the dominant emotion? And how risky is that boat ride, your long-awaited haircut, or that dinner out with friends? Dr. Gurdip Parhar weighs in. And what about sexual fantasies? Are they normal? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Right now, I want to talk about the voices of the silenced. She's a distinguished social scientist who works and has done immense research on the occupation of midwifery. She also works with marginalized groups, including sex workers. With the growing concern amongst Canadians regarding their income and benefits in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic, Cecilia Benoit has made it her mission to help bolster the voices of those who are silenced and advocate for the Canadian sex workers who do not qualify for the CERB and other benefits offered by the government. And Cecilia Benoit joins me on the line. Good evening, Cecilia. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining me. I I think this is a group that has been forgotten about, um, the sex workers, and it's difficult for them to speak up. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that in the work that you do. Yes, uh, one of the most... um Difficulties uh, sex workers face is the, the stigma about um, about their work, what they do for a living, and so um, and also the the laws that we currently have in Canada, which um, uh, makes punitive laws, which um, ban the purchase of sexual services uh, uh, for pay and also um, for communication in in most public places, and and also many other aspects about uh, the sex work, including. Uh, advertising um, someone else, uh, someone else advertising sex work, sex workers services. So it makes it very difficult for them to make a living. Um, anyway, uh, despite uh, um, and now we have COVID, which um, uh, is prohibiting um, in-house or in-person services um, con- contact with uh, individuals of any kind. So. Sex workers really are uh, in the corner. And my study, or one of our studies, has shown that actually sex workers make a living also from working in uh, other precarious jobs. Um, about one-third of them are working in, uh, in uh, food and beverage services, um, sometimes in care work. And um, all of that, all those jobs also have been, uh, most of them closed down. So they, they find themselves, sex workers find themselves with a very little income, and not avail, uh, not able to avail of the um, emergency services the government has put into place. That's right, and we're specifically talking about that Canada Emergency Response benefit. And people may not realize that sex workers, sex work is work. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, Sumerian Near East Sumerian records dating back to 2400 BC are the earliest recorded mention of sex work as an occupation. And these were temple brothels operated by priests in the city of Uruk. Uh, so this is this is the oldest occupation, basically. And these uh, people need to put food on their tables. They need to feed their children. They need they have families. They need to put a roof over their head. Yet they've largely been ignored by the government here. Yes, uh, I think uh, what we have is a, 
our society. Most uh, many people have a very um, um, kind of uh, blinkered view of sex work, and uh, it's either you know uh, glamorous or it's or it's the opposite. But it's what they fail to see that these are ordinary individuals trying to make a living, uh, often structurally disadvantaged. Um, and in our studies, when we asked them about the different kinds of work they do, often sex work is seen as is more attractive in the sense that they can order organize their hours um, in, in a better fashion. Um, they make more money per hour. They have more choice around their the work week. But there's the stigma and discrimination that that makes uh, sex work um, uh, a difficult job to do. And so, um, and because of that, uh, sex workers are not a, often don't file for taxes. They also they're not available for income assistance. And then this uh, this new available emergency fund is um, also not accessible to most of them. They're 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 very worried about being exposed um, and uh, incriminalized. Of course, and a, a lot of people have had to pivot in this. Uh, pandemic because their jobs have been affected. A lot of work has gone online. Um, you know, basic health care has gone online, which probably had there not been a pandemic, it would have taken 10 years um, to do that. But uh, I, I, I imagine that some of the activities are still going on or as we're opening up, um, things may be more beneficial. But what do you think um, would be helpful uh, for sex workers in terms of, um, you know, uh, the stigma, the shame, and, uh, you know, allowing them to not be so marginalized and silenced? Well, I, I think in the, in the, before I ask that more general, answer that more general question, I think in the immediate situation, um, if government had channeled funds to sex worker organizations, which are in most communities across the country, um, they provide outreach services and programs for sex workers, uh, often through uh, local government funding from charities and so on. So they're a legitimate uh, group to channel funds to for for outreach during this time for sex workers, uh, whether it's uh, housing supports or food um, or other such um, needs that they may have. But in the long run, I think um, changing changing the criminal code will help legitimize um, sex workers' work. We see that in New Zealand, which is taking um, sex work right out of the criminal code. Um, New Zealand used to have laws similar to Canada under the old British system. Um, And uh, so what you have in New Zealand is sex workers able to, you know, to work legitimately, to file their taxes, to um, to and for um, regulations that we normally have for for other occupations uh, now apply to their workplaces, and so they can complain if they are being exploited. And so, so that kind of legitimization of their work, I think, it's really important. But also because they are generally a disadvantaged group, they do need access to other resources to create very. Um, greater equity in the society, as do other disadvantaged groups. And I'm thinking here about uh, public education, access to non-judgmental services, um, maybe even uh, access to um, uh, kind of a universal basic income. All of these kind of efforts to reduce inequities in society would be very beneficial to sex workers as well. Absolutely. Uh, that's such important information. I, I wish we had a bit more time uh, to talk to you um, about this, but I'd love to have you back um, and, and follow up on this. Uh, Cecilia Benoit, where can people get more information about this? 
Um, I'm at the University of Victoria, so um, my my um, my information is there. But I do have my own website is www.understandingsexwork.ca, uh, and I post all all of our resources up there, including publications and so on. So um, it's free, um, so anybody can access that information. Thank you like so to. much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> you've heard his voice before, you've likely read some of his blogs or perhaps even read his article in the New York Times about how he coaches men to avoid divorce. Matthew Frey, relationship coach and writer, joins me on the line. Good evening, Matthew. How are you? Hi, good evening, Maureen. I'm well. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's awesome that you can return to the program and uh, dispense your magic, uh, quite frankly, because I think this is so necessary and so needed. Now, I know you primarily coach men. And I think that's so important because often men don't know where to turn. Lots of people, Matt, live in marriages where they are upset. They are miserable. The same things keep recurring over and over again. They don't know how to get to the root of the problem. And so oftentimes this pain can result in seeking pleasure. And so you wrote a blog called How Marital Affairs Happen, The Beautiful Stranger I Wanted to Sleep With while I was married. And when something hurts all the time, it is easy to chase those things that, quite frankly, relieve the pain. Now, many people may never do this, but they might think about it. And of course, there's so much opportunity today with social media to go online, find somebody that you've never met, but you find them attractive and seek pleasure in that way. So, why is this dangerous, and what do you recommend people do before they get to this point? Loaded questions. I perceive the conditions of affairs to happen very, very gradually. I grew up thinking about sexual affairs as there's two people, and they're married, and everything's like really, really normal. And then one person runs off in this con artist super gross way like we see in the movies and has this really scandalous affair. And I think that is a story that is like made for Hollywood and is probably very atypical of what the common marital affair looks like. What I think happens is two people are accidentally over the course of many, many, many years, incrementally hurting one another, damaging one another, and they get in these sort of toxic communication habits. Where, where neither person's validating the other, right? What used to be these small things turn into these really, really painful fights. And you get to year seven, year 10, year 15, and these things hurt more than ever. And there's a lot of resentment. And maybe there's a lot of lack of romance, passion, physical intimacy. Maybe a wife who has a husband who spends every weekend playing golf, who works 70 hours a week, who um, forgets her anniversary, who never ever checks in and says, hey, is there anything I can do to make your day better? Or, hey, you looked amazing today. You know, can we do things later tonight? It'd be, that'd be very exciting. People where that's not a routine part of their relationship. Might it make sense for somebody after years of what they perceive to be mistreatment, emotional and physical abandonment to desire pleasure? And this obviously is not just a, a female thing. A man feeling rejected by his wife will undoubtedly think and feel these same things. And I often think that like neither partner even understands the why, the WHY behind like why this is happening. Often like a wife will pull back because it feels unsafe because sex and intimacy feels unsafe 
with a person she feels betrays her on these small things that he denies or betrayals, right? Every time she says something about it, he's defending it. And then he perceives her coldness and her trying to protect herself from this unsafe thing as rejection. And I think two people in that cycle can start to justify sexual fantasies about other people, uh, emotional affairs and or flirtations with other people. And then eventually some people, when they feel as if their partner doesn't want them anyway, maybe they take the leap, right? Like here, here's, I think, the conversation. My wife doesn't love me anyway. It's been several years and she's never demonstrated interest. So is it really bad for me to go pursue this other thing over here? Is that really betrayal in the way it would have been when she did love me, want me, things like that? Um, And I think people tell these stories to themselves and they start to justify infidelity. That's exactly right. And another narrative that I hear played out in my office is, Um, My wife doesn't even like sex anyway because she doesn't want to have sex with me. And so they assume that she wouldn't want to have sex with somebody else. And that's not necessarily true. I know you deal a lot with uh, men to avoid divorce, but you know the occasional couple. And so I deal a lot more with couples in my clinical practice. And I'm always surprised by that because we have this idea also that women don't have extramarital affairs. But who do you think men are having the extramarital affairs with? (laughs) Never made sense to me. But um, so both are capable of actually seeking a panacea, seeking almost medication for their pain through this, somebody else finds me attractive. Somebody else desires me. And, you know, I'm here in this home and this particular person doesn't desire me. I'm lonely in my marriage and I need an escape from the pain, quite frankly. So what do you recommend for people to avoid this risk in a marriage where it's nothing but misery? It's an awareness issue. It's a blind spot issue. It's a maybe not thinking about the kinds of behaviors that will result in the death of sexual intimacy in their marriage. I think there's these subtle ideas that maybe the average guy isn't thinking about. And safety and trust are these really key ideas. And I think a lot of guys think about safety as, well, I would never hit her. And I think a lot of guys think about trust as, I would never betray her, right? I would never cheat on her. I would never go gamble away the family money. You know, I'm going to come home every night. I'm trustworthy. But trust is deeper than that. Trust is when I vulnerably disclose something I'm thinking and feeling. Is my partner listening and understanding, like, the actual pain that I'm experiencing and then acting invested in the process of saying, hey, I don't want you to feel this bad thing. So I'm going to work with you to make sure it doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in the average relationship. People, safety and trust are eroded. And I think there's another like, really, really key idea um, that I talk to guys about a lot. I once wrote an article called She Feels Like Your Mom and doesn't want to bang you. When you don't recognize the mental load that many wives and mothers carry, that this invisible life management, doctor's appointments, dinners, school stuff for the kids, laundry, all of these things that working mothers and and even stay-at-home mothers, there's so much that falls on their shoulders that gets dismissed or, or never considered at all. And sometimes men find themselves sort of forcing their wives to do the same things for them because of their lack of investment in the marriage that their wife is doing for their children. And I believe that wives who discover that their task list every day for their kids, however many they might have, and for her spouse might look and feel a lot alike. And since I think it's unhealthy to be sexually attracted to children, I think it makes a lot of sense for a person to lose sexual attraction for a person 
for whom they're doing the same things they have to do for children, right? Like the same tasks. I really believe this idea of accidentally putting your wife in some sort of maternal role for you, I think that really weighs on a person and kills sexual attraction and intimacy and all of these things that initially brought you together from a chemistry standpoint. And not to mention the fatigue when one person in the couple has all of the or most of the household duties to do uh, that can lead to fatigue for a woman, especially if she's working inside and outside of the home. And fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in women. It's not that she doesn't have sexual desire, but you just might be driving her crazy. Matthew, you you do some great work, great writing. Uh, where can people access some of this great work? People can read things that I write on my blog, musttbethistalltoride.com. I'm also a contributor to the Good Men Project. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the program to talk about this very important subject. I, I know you help a lot of men out there and ultimately couples and families. Thank you, Maureen. Such a pleasure. Yes, these, are, these are difficult times, let me tell you. Uh, no one is immune to the intense emotional impact of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Some people who are introverted may actually find the social, social isolation as a little tranquil reprieve from the pressure of trying to keep up with an extroverted world in which we live. Um, but this crisis on some level is traumatic for each and every one of us, and it may arouse a range of emotions that include anxiety or fear about the future and also a deep sense of loss. Many of us are grieving. Or we may not be there yet, but that may be down the road. But for some of us, anger may be the dominant emotion that we feel. And this can impact our lives, our love lives, our relationships. And joining me on the line is the founder at Moose Anger Management. He's been on the program before. Alistair Moose joins me to talk about anger and whether or not it's a healthy emotion. Good evening, Alistair. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. Um, so you're the uh, anger guru. <laughs> 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 Anger's a tough one. <laughs> I don't get angry enough, and people get angry that I don't get angry. <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> we, we can help you. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, people get upset that I don't get upset about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I'm not on that side of that anger, you know, but I know that a lot of people lose their cool <laughs> and have difficulty controlling, but it's not necessarily healthy not to express your anger either. One day I might just blow up, <laughs> but if we hold it, yeah, if we repress our feelings, but I'm not, I just don't get excited about that. I think cause I'm in healthcare, you know, and I just think, Oh, you know, life's too short. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's perfectly reasonable response as well. You know, we don't have to get uh, all emotional or upset about things. You can see uh, all over the U.S. and Canada and, and, in fact, the world right now where people are, some people are getting so upset that their thinking becomes really black and white, all or nothing. Just hearing the news, somebody saying, we don't have systemic racism in the police forces in America. You know, that's one of those statements that's all or nothing. It right. doesn't actually make any sense. It would make much more sense that uh, somebody say there is racism in the police forces and, you know, this is what we're going to do about it. But if, if it's denied altogether, 
then that's a blanket statement that they're not going to do anything to change. And that's concerning. And I know you deal with anger, but is that denial piece, is that, because in my clinical practice, I deal with the denial piece where mm-hmm. um, people are, you know, they, they can never look at what they are doing to contribute to the issues in the relationship. Anger might be one of them. They might be blowing a gasket left, right, and center over nothing. And, you know, not taking that time to stop and pause and, and reflect and hit the stop button. Um, but they don't realize that they, they'll, they'll blame the other person and then even blame their anger on the other person. And often, and, and you know, I think about a lot of the police, uh, you know, dealing with all these riots, like so many of them must be so uh, full of adrenaline. Like it must be so intense being in those riots that they're so elevated that they're going into fight or flight. And then they do things like push down a 75-year-old man, you know, who was not threatening at all. Or, you know, there's many other stories like that where there's this really significant overreaction and then denial. Because if we're elevated enough, uh, we disconnect from our heart. We disconnect from our, our emotional and our uh, intellectual intelligence. And then we just act from a place of ego or this need to win or get our way at any cost. Of, you know, the higher, the higher we're elevated, the lower our emotional maturity becomes. So you see a guy pushing down a 75-year-old man. It's like, yeah, like there's no maturity there. There's no heart there. Because otherwise he would stop and say, oh, my God, what have I done? He would, he would feel shame for having pushed this man down and that he was lying there bleeding. He would do something else. He would connect to his heart and he would think, you know, I need to do something to help here. And I think that's the, the thing where we hear so many people saying things like, well, all lives matter or things like that. And it's, they're not listening. They're not really taking into the uh, account black people's experiences or indigenous people's experiences. They're just defending their own position without taking the time to really listen. And I think if anything, this, all these, uh, all these protests are a time for people to really take the time to listen. And, and in fact, hearing that in Minneapolis, they're going to actually defund the police and change the way they do, uh, public safety in that city is pretty remarkable. That's that that that's constructive anger. Right? People are fed up. They're pissed off, and they're doing something about it. Right, but for the most part, that. they're quietly protesting. Yes, they're very upset, and of course, it's it's disheartening. It's horrific, especially what happened to George Floyd, and you know that's been going on for a long time. But the filming hasn't been, you know, is fairly new. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, oftentimes people, too, they, they raise their voices and they get angry because I've heard from clients that they feel that they can control the situation better that way. But, but they're actually out of control. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, they're, they're out of control. And generally, it's a response to feeling not heard. You know, like the dad says, well, if I don't yell at my kids, they won't listen to me. And, you, you know, you can see the blinders are on there. Well, you're not seeing that there are other possibilities. There are many possibilities in different ways to talk to your kids, for instance. Um, but he's so frustrated that 
he's not able to see that. And so people need to take the time to pause and step back and look at that bigger picture and then reconnect with actually what matters to them, which generally for most of us, it's about treating people with respect and kindness and actually listening so that conflict can be resolved rather than denied, which doesn't get you anywhere. Right. And is it something that somebody is born with or is it something that they learn when they grow up that screaming is okay, losing control, and then everything being fine five minutes later? (laughs) Well, there's both. There's, uh, you know, there's trauma from previous generations that can, can, we can hold in our bodies. And they've done some really interesting research around this. Um, but there's that, there, there's a history that can go back even a couple of generations, but there's also, of course, current circumstances and whatever we learned growing up. So there's, there's a few different things to look at, uh, to, to understand that. So if people want to deal well with their anger, it, it helps to know their family history, their parents' history, even their grandparents' history, what people did with anger and the other emotions, whether they held them all in, whether they used alcohol to suppress them, or whether they all came out. You know, it's not unusual to hear, well, that's what we've always done in our family, or I'm from this country or that country, and we all yell. Right, exactly. (laughs) And it's just, well, actually, no, not everybody from that country yells all the time. It's, yes. It's not true. But that's what they they experienced growing up. And so they generalize that to the world and can't see anything different. And now I know you work in British Columbia with groups, um, groups of men, groups of women, because no one is immune to uh, outbursts of anger and, and that it affects their livelihood, it affects their relationships, it affects their families, friends. Um, what Does it take a crisis for people to realize, I need to learn to deal with my anger? Or is it something that somebody that's listening right now who's spouse has perhaps said, you know, you've got to stop yelling at the kids, you've got to stop yelling at me, you've got to, you know, control your temper. Um, what does it take for people and what can they do to actually calm down and, and realize that, um, you know, there are other ways to skin the cat? Well, and, and that said, is being able to stop and self-reflect. We need to be able to look into what's happening in our own body Notice that constriction in the chest, that feeling like somebody's sitting on your, you know, an elephant sitting on your chest or the tension in the shoulders or the overwhelmed feeling in our temples and our forehead. Many people uh, grind their teeth. They hold a lot of anger in the, uh, in the jaw. Um, it's, it's about looking at that. And, of course, on our website at angerman.ca, there's all sorts of videos Um and podcasts and so people need to take the courage to investigate it and ideally to look at that stuff within themselves with compassion with self-compassion and um you know with curiosity right you know, th- this is an investigation it isn't an interrogation so people who come with an open mind who actually look at all this stuff to try and figure out how come I'm acting like this, they tend to have more success. Right. And what are some of the things your clients say uh, after they have learned to manage their anger or deal with it? Um, how does it affect their lives? What are some of the more common 
things? Well, some of the uh, employers who send people our way say that their employees come back and they act with more uh, maturity. Mm -hmm. So they're more likely to stop and think things through. They're more likely to be less reactive and to be more aware of their tone of voice, uh, be more aware of whether or not they're listening well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people like being around them more because right. <laughs> they're being more, uh, you know, what I think is that they're being more themselves. They're taking the time to act in a way that feels right for them. Because generally people come to see us when they're feeling bad. They're usually feeling shame that they've said or done things that have hurt the people around them. And they don't want to do that anymore. Right. Sometimes people think, oh, man, you work with all these angry people. And really, no, they're not really angry when they come to see me. They're feeling bad when they come to see me. And they want to change. Right. So they're motivated. They're willing to look at this stuff because it's scarier to stay on the current trajectory, the status quo, than to look into what their responsibility is and what are the things they can do that will actually create change. One guy came to me and he described himself as somebody who would lose it every day on somebody. And after the fourth session of the group, he said, now I rate everything on a scale of one to 10. He says, I think... You know, in a minute or an hour or a day or or a decade from now, how much will this bother me? And and he said, most things were about, you know, one or two. When I really stopped and thought it through, most things weren't really that big of a deal. He wiped out 85% of his freakouts. Now, he he still (laughs) hung on to 15% of them, right? But Progress, not perfection. We're after improvement, not perfection. Right, exactly. Well, Alistair, great chatting to you, as usual. Excellent information, angerman.ca, lots of information there. Or sign up for one of the groups if you want to lead a better life. Uh, You've heard his voice before. He's clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19, the one and only... Bollywood star, Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Uh, happy to be here, Maureen. Oh, it's wonderful. All right, so we're opening up. Let's get right down to it. But first of all, I have a caller, so we might as well start out, start right out of the gates with a caller. Selena from Edmonton. Hello, Selena. Hi. I have a question because uh, I kind of got divorced when I was like 45, and so now I'm 51, and I'm meeting someone now since then I was blessed enough to go through menopause. And so I've never really been in a position to have to use lubricant and or I'm not on hormones. I'm against that, but I'm, I'm in a position of having to do a whole bunch of stuff I don't know about, but also needing to do a whole bunch of stuff I don't know about. And my, I'm just concerned. I don't know if it's all okay. So are you, um, did you say that you went through menopause? Uh, yes, I kind of went, I started at like 48. Okay. And, and so now I'm 51 and a half. So okay. it's pretty much no period since 49. Okay. So, um, are you experiencing some intimate health issues? 
I'm experienced first time dating. First time dating. Okay. So in, in six years. Okay. So are you thinking that's related to menopause? I mean, if you're not having any symptoms no, no, with no, men- no. The, the reason is because no, no, I'm trying to experience first time dating, but it's drier than dry down there. Oh, I see. That's I, okay. Drier I, than the so desert. Absolutely. Right. Yes. I don't know what to do with that, and I don't know how to deal with that, and I don't know anything about that. Okay, that's exactly I, I what I do in my clinical practice. So, Dr. Parhar, shall I take this question? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so what happens is the estrogen receptors decrease in the urogenital tract, and women can have vaginal dryness, which can lead to painful sex and low sexual desire. They may also leak urine as well. So one thing to start you know, over the counter, you can get tomorrow instead of a lubricant, which you may want to use a lubricant during intimate relations, but uh, it's a personal moisturizer that I recommend. And it is the one I recommend is, is FEM, P-H-E-M-M-E. I don't get any money as a result of recommending that. It's the most hygienic. It's got hyaluronic acid in it, vitamin D. It's natural and it will actually help to heal your tissues. It's like a rain shower for the, for the vagina is what I say <laughs> to women. And so I would start using that two, three, four times a week. There's no hormones in it. If it continues, then I would speak to my doctor about low dose localized estrogen therapy. You can get more information about this on my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, or my other website, which is GetCleopatra.com. Wonderful. Amazing. And have a great time dating. Thank you. That's awesome. Let us know how the date went. (laughs) Terrifying. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, and we'll enter, I imagine we're going to enter her into the uh, contest. Um, She deserves it. So here's a question for you, Dr. Parhar. What does fully recovered really mean? This is a text from Mike from Coquitlam. Thanks, Mike. Um, Brilliant question. And I think that fully recovered, um, initially we're saying that we fully recovered from COVID-19 required two negative nasopharyngeal swabs 24 hours apart. So that means you have to have one swab, it was negative, and then 24 hours you have to do a second one. Obviously, with the limited amount of testing, that became sort of unreasonable to expect people to do that before the negative. Then now we've, what we've basically said is that it's 10 days after the onset of symptoms. Um, as long as your symptoms have resolved, and the main symptoms to have resolved are fever, and even if there's a little bit of a cough left, we'll still consider that having recovered. Um, but 10 days after the onset of symptoms, we'll probably think, think that you've recovered. But really, you shouldn't be coughing lots and lots of respiratory droplets around to other people. And the fever really needs to have resolved. Um, that, that's probably what we're looking for, a symptom resolution as much as possible. Okay, excellent. So we're opening up. And, uh, you know, I have said I'm not going to go to a restaurant. <laughs> I'll only do the takeout. And I'm, I haven't had my hair done that's it. I'm doing it myself right now. Um, and I have been so. And and so there are some behave, some things that are riskier than others. And then um, some of the restaurants are having different practices, I noticed. So uh, we happened to go to a, a high-end uh, restaurant in a hotel. And, and so I imagine because it's an international hotel and um, we were socially distanced and the whole thing, but they were taking our temperatures which, you know, really is, you know, neither here nor there. And then giving us a little card <laughs> that said we could, you know, we were approved because we were afebrile. Um, and other restaurants, even outside, inside or outside, where we dined outdoors six feet apart, they, um, they, the, those waiters and waitresses weren't wearing masks. But they, at, the other, at the other place where the restaurant was in the hotel, 
they were wearing masks and they were they were wiping everything down and making us, you know, they were spraying our hands and they had all these practices, but the other one didn't. There's these are risky behaviors is, is my point. And there are so many things people want to do, like go to the hairdresser, or go out for dinner, or have a pedicure. So what are some of the more riskier behaviors, Dr. Parhar? Yeah, this is a really challenging situation, Maureen, and I think a lot of people, especially you and I have talked about this before, what gets covered in the media are the people sort of protesting, them, not the race stuff that's going on there, but protesting any of this lockdown stuff and saying, no, we're going to object and we want to be out there. But what doesn't get covered are the number of people who have anxiety and fear about actually opening up. And you and I both in our practices have people who won't go to various treatments and so forth because they're actually worried. And so I think anxiety is out there. Um, there was a group of four um, infectious disease specialists who published recently a list of thing, a, a list of different ways of um, um, approaching um, uh, the different risks that happen when you go out and uh, participate in activities. And what they did was they looked at about four, four or five criteria. One was, is it inside or outside? Inside being more risk than being outside. How close are you to other people? How, 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 what's the time spent being exposed to other people? How likely are people to comply in that environment to the physical distancing? And what's the personal risk level? So they looked at all this sort of thing. Not surprising, the highest risk, so it's on a scale of 0 to 10, with 9 and 10 is the highest risk. Highest risk were things like bars were 9, large music concerts were 9, um, then, then it drops down to sports stadiums where the, where the levels fall down to risks of 8, gyms were 8, um, and so amusement parks were eight, churches were eight. Um, so when you think about the highest risk, it certainly is um, situations like bars and um, music concerts. And the thinking is that it's hard to physically distance. People are often um, speaking in loud voices. And then certainly with the bars, then you have the alcohol. And alcohol, people drop their inhibitions. And all of a sudden, instead of staying at their own table, they're 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 befriending people at various tables, and um, and you know everybody at the bar is their friend, and so all of a sudden it's hard to keep that sort of physical distance. So those are the highest sort of risk activities. Um, um, churches, um, amusement parks are sort of fall into the higher group buffets, and then some sports activities fall into the next group of um, playing basketball, swimming pools, um, um, even schools fall into about a level of uh, level seven. So those are the higher risk things. We have lots of texts here, Dr. Parhar. Um, I'm going to start with this. Uh, hi, how important is O2 or oxygen saturation in screening for COVID-19 from Paula? Thanks, Paula. Um, so oxygen saturation, um, if, uh, listeners have had this done. It's where the, you go into the hospital or even at home and put a little clothespin type device that goes onto your finger. It checks for the pulse and checks the oxygen level. Um, it can help tell you the severity of um, COVID infection if you're having complications, but as a screening tool, it won't help. So it's not a great way to predict or, or determine if somebody has COVID, but it will tell somebody's oxygen level. And that could be a problem, not just because of COVID, but many other respiratory or cardiovascular conditions. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, what are some of the lasting effects of the virus? Mike from Coquitlam. Thanks, Mike. We're starting to understand that. If you think about the earliest infections we've had in North America, probably in about March, March or April. So it's only been a few months. So we don't know what the long-lasting effects are. Um, in China, the, some of those infections have been now around since December. 
What we're thinking is that there is some long-term effects on the lungs and some people do have difficulty with breathing and there is some scarring that continues on the lung tissue. Some people are reporting long-term neurological symptoms, Maureen, that where they get um, almost mild stroke-like symptoms that persist for long periods of time. It's hard to know right now um, what, what will be the long-term effects. The ones we're studying the most closely are the neurological and respiratory um, sort of symptoms. Okay, and um, I noted that I think it was Washington. It was Washington State, but I think they had about four hundred and fifty new cases on Saturday. Um, and so I have a question from John. He says, "Does do you, dear Dr. Parhar, do you think that we should extend our border restriction to the U.S. to non-essential travel after June twenty-first? And if yes, for how long?" There, there is a politically charged question. Um, you know, from a strictly medical perspective it doesn't make sense to open up the border um, to the U.S. just because there's such an epicenter right now and there's so many cases when B.C. has such a low rate. Why would you open up the floodgates to not just the U.S. but anywhere from people from anywhere coming in large numbers and then our firewall would be gone? Um, so from a strictly medical perspective, it would be hard for me to suggest we should open up um, the borders just yet. Until the U.S. numbers go down. Okay, and then this I was wondering about myself. Um, it seems as though the pandemic has taken a backseat to marching in various cities around the globe. We'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. Do you think that all of those marchers are likely to get sick? I, I hope not, but I think it uh, it would be it would be very likely that many of them will have passed on or gotten the virus from some others around them. And you have to remember some of the high-risk activities aren't just being close to people, but they're also, you know, speaking or yelling or um, loudly speaking. And that is some of what happens in, in a protest. Now, I'm not understating the importance of the issues that being discussed and, and, and being protested for, but is there a risk for infection of the COVID-19 virus because of the protest? Yes, I think we have to acknowledge that there is. I, I did see something on Facebook and it said um, in New York City, people were social distancing and they were wearing masks during a very peaceful protest. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we we stand to reason, it stands to reason that we should be worried in, uh, in a couple of weeks and to see what happens after all of those um, gatherings, important as they are. Um, what are some of the things that we can do, Dr. Parhar? What are some of the less risky um, yeah, activities. Yeah, I, I was rattling off the, the more serious uh, um, ones that we should be avoiding, but the less um, serious, less the ones where you're less likely to get infection, take out from restaurants. Morning, you and I have talked about that. Um, as long as you're not um, interacting too much with people, who are either delivering the food or when you're going to pick it up. In terms of sports, tennis um, makes sense because you're again far away from somebody on the other side of the net. Um, um, uh, going for a walk outside, cycling outside. When you're taking morning paddle boarding in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> you're probably, other, other than the dolphin or whale that may swim up the next to you, you're probably not near too many other um, beings. Um, libraries and museums, again, open spaces, hopefully not too crowded, are probably the safest. Golfing is another one that's safe. Um, camping, and I know a lot of people have been fighting for and competing for campsites, but again, as long as you can keep a distance from others. So you see that the safer ones tend to be the ones outside where it's easier to physically distance from others. Right. And and maybe inviting somebody on the family boat um, beyond, you know, you can have the family and then you can maybe invite another couple. Right. Would that be yeah. OK? And even better if they're on separate boats and you're waving at them across the, <laughs> <laughs> across the inlet. I don't this is true. Marine, but that would be safer. <laughs> you should be waving when you're out on the water. And um, 
Um, but as long as when, when people start drinking on the boats, that's a problem. <laughs> and of course, then there's talking louder, especially if it's a motorboat and or powerboat. And, um, you know, then they're starting to spit and yell and scream in the whole nine yards. <laughs> and then it can be dangerous. Dr. Gurdi Parhar, once again, thank you so much for all of the great information. And we'll hey, thank you, talk to you again next week. And so many people have this fantasy. And so fantasies are fine because you're socially distancing from other people and you don't even have to put a mask on for it. Um, But in most people who experience multi-partner sex fantasies like orgies or threesomes, um, you know, they get the sensory overload. But the main reason that this is so enjoyed by people is because you are the star of the show finally <laughs> the you have this fantasy or the most common fantasy is that there are multiple people who desire you who want to have sex with you and that is part of the turn on the other thing about sexual fantasies, well, they are perfectly normal, number one. Um, I, I often speak lately on Zoom these days around around the world, and it's just amazing um, how many questions I get about fantasy and infidelity. Those are probably the two most common questions. But every fantasy falls into one of three categories. And there are those fantasies that we keep to ourselves. We don't share those with anybody. And um, because there may be some shame or embarrassment associated with them, for many, many reasons. It can just be shame because you think your partner is going to think poorly of you, or it could be embarrassment because you're fantasizing about the neighbor. Um, or, um, you know, so there's, there's those reasons that we keep those um, to ourselves. But then there are those fantasies that we do share with our partners. And that sole reason is to increase the steaminess, that hotness um, during sex. And, and there are those fantasies that we would really like to play out in real life. Unfortunately, during a pandemic, it is no time to play out those fantasies that, uh, that we so desire. So if it's simply a fantasy for you, my recommendation is don't overthink it. It's fine. There's no shame in it. There should be no stigma. Sex is healthy. It's normal. It's okay. It's fine. It's to be enjoyed, much like life itself, not endured. Uh, I had a woman call earlier on the program, and she was talking about um, because she had gone through menopause, and often women who are experiencing menopause or perimenopause, the years leading up to menopause, they may have some vaginal dryness, and that can lead to sexual pain and low sexual desire. And the fantasy is, I never want to have sex again. Um, But there are so many treatments for that. And it's also important to have a healthy vagina uh, in terms of experiencing the female sexual response cycle. So, so that desire, that arousal, excitement, lubrication, plateau, orgasm, and resolution, and, and you know, multiple orgasms as well. If you have any questions, I'm, don't forget, I'm still giving out um, personal massages, vibrators, as they say, um, uh, curved ones and short ones and tipped ones. And um, also uh, vaginal dilators can be very helpful for women who've experienced such dryness that the opening to their vagina has become smaller. So you want to use a personal moisturizer, vaginal dilator, and localized estrogen. It's a three-pronged approach, or maybe four-pronged, I guess. Well, you'll get to have the fourth. Anyhow, uh, it'll be a whole lot easier. But fantasies um, are... uh, 
you know, are very common and very healthy, but there's a stigma associated with them. Um, but group sex is a, a very common one. It's a pretty accessible fantasy. Um, you may not be able to have sex with your favorite uh, celebrity or your neighbor, but um, you might be able to find somebody who is, in fact, down for a threesome. Um, so you want to actually, um, if, you know, this this is all part of the communication and part of, um, you know, being intimate and getting very close with somebody. Um, there's all sorts of uh, different types of fantasies. Oftentimes people fantasize about power, control, or rough sex. And, um, you know, BDSM is, you know, almost becoming mainstream. I mean, it's quite a bit more mainstream than it has been in, in years past. But BDSM is basically about the consensual exchange of power in a sexual or non-sexual situation. And so there are some people who get off on the fact of uh, that they are uh, being sexually submissive. And that can be extremely arousing for some people who are always in control, maybe in their work life or in their home life. Maybe they are the take charge person. And so the idea of being that, that submissive one, it, it can be a huge turn on. And then uh, there are also there's the idea of being in control. It can be a very, um, very erotic, very exciting, can be hot due to the taboo nature of rough sex and that sense of authority. So there's lots of other um, role playing that can be done. Uh, kind of boss employee role play falls into it. Uh, if you still have a job, uh, even if you don't, why not? You can still get one. Lots of jobs are just pivoting these days. There's the professor student um, one. So there's lots of different waitress um, waiter uh, one as well. Um, so there's lots of different ways. There's novelty and adventure and, and variety. So, you know, sex outdoors. And, and of course, um, if you're just dying to get together with somebody and the pandemic has gotten in your way, you're the doctor. Uh, the activities are safer outside. So if you're going to have sex, hit the beach or go to a mountaintop um, because you're, you're not going to be able to do it on a plane. No more mile high members for a while. Um, the thing is, is, you know, that variety, that novelty, that adventure that can up the excitement and, um, you know, that the arousal and, and just shake things up a little bit. Oftentimes people become so bored in the bedroom and, and women actually report more boredom in the bedroom than men. Um, fantasies also center around novelty and that might be incorporating a new sexual activity into your, uh, repertoire, which might be a little bit dull at the moment. Um, and it can, include oral sex or anal sex, um, and as I mentioned, having sex in a new location. Um, so there's, there's also uh, this non-monogamy fantasy that occurs, and, and I'm getting more and more questions about open relationships in uh, the work that I do. I see lots of couples in sexless marriages, or I see people in sexless marriages, because uh, a patient I had this week, I said, how did you find me? And she said, well, I didn't. My husband found you, and he wrote this beautiful note to me and said, you know, I watched her TED talk, and you don't have TEDx talk, and you don't have to go see her, speak to her, but you could, and you know, I, I love you very much, and you know, it's just, and oftentimes people don't know where to go. So, so, uh, this this woman and um, she had suggested an open relationship to her husband and he didn't want that he wanted her um, but she asked me what I thought about open relationships and I'm getting that question more and more and to be honest with you open relationships are very dangerous uh, because we're, we're 
emotional people. We get connected. Somebody wants us. Somebody desires us. So it's difficult to remain in the one relationship where you may be experiencing pain and you're suffering and and you're feeling lonely and you're feeling that that person doesn't want you, that person doesn't desire you and that you're not good enough. And then so you go just to have sex with somebody outside of the relationship and then you're just you're you're just there for the sex, but you get surprised by the fact that the emotion might overtake you and here's somebody who wants you. Swinging is becoming increasingly acknowledged as a uh, healthy and happy relationship structure, if you will. Um, and and so some some people are suggesting that. That's also, especially in this time of pandemic, they're wrought with danger, um, not to mention just the STIs, but the um, also COVID-19. So I'm not sure how the, the um, lifestyle clubs are doing these days. If somebody out there knows, feel free to uh, pop me a text, one 877 you know, it's important to, you know, when you talk about your fantasies, you know, how far do you want to go with the fantasies? If you've talked about that with your partner and, you know, it's, it's up to you to establish whether this is something you want in your relationship, because that is just such a different animal than simply having the relationship. And so many of the clients that I see through my clinical practice will, will talk about how much shame they have about these ideas and um, that they, you know, that they want to in- incorporate into their relationship, but they feel that they will be shamed by their spouse um, quite often. And, and, you know, if you want to change your relationship structure, that's what I see a lot of people suggesting when they're in a sexless marriage. And, and let me define a sexless marriage to you. It is sex less than 10 times a year. Um, and so you'd be surprised at uh, how many people live that way. But oftentimes, because, you know, so many people, men and women will have low sexual desire and they will say, if I never have sex again, it will be too soon. Uh, you know, there, there's a number of reasons for low sexual desire, but, you know, sometimes it's fatigue or depression or medical conditions. Very, very often it's a history of sexual abuse or unwanted sexual advances. And so that can really significantly and severely impact the intimacy that a person will bring to a relationship. They often shut down and they, they cannot have that. And they often repress that, those feelings as well, or, or what happened and they dissociate disassociate from the actual event, but it really impacts negatively upon an intimate relationship. And so oftentimes people will say, so we've decided to change our relationship structure. So we've decided we're going to explore uh, different ways. I'm, I'm maybe going to have an open relationship or do a threesome or, um, you know, try different things or, or he can just go out and just have sex with somebody else. I don't even care as long as he doesn't upset our apple cart. But there are risks to that upsetting your apple cart very, very much so. Um, you know, in and out of the bedroom, we want what we can't have. And that's simply because our brains work that way. Any sexual relationship that could get us into trouble or be, can be seen as strange or forbidden or gross in real life can actually be a turn on for people. And so that's why forbidden sex is often that most common fantasy or taboo sex. Um, and so there's, you know, there's so many different things that people can do. And oftentimes they want to increase the intimacy in the relationship and not feel betrayed within that relationship. So what I suggest initially before you start acting on your fantasies that may impact your relationship negatively, it's, you know, take long walks on the beach, candlelit dinners, eye contact, really take time to get to know one another again. These are not just romantic hyperbole. These are 
all part of a fantasy of being desired, intimate, and romantic. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.